I ask you to rise and body your spirit for the reading of God's word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Amen. You may be seated. We are now more than halfway through a series called The Holy Seas, Worship and Witness, 
from the book of Revelation is about what we do and hear as Christians, how we worship and how it forms us to be a certain kind of people. We believe that the things we do together as a community form us to be a kind of people, to be a community and to have a certain kind of witness in the watching world. And we've been using this dominant uh, image and metaphor of a meal, worship as a holy meal. And what we said four weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess, I don't remember, is uh, the first C was called. That the call to worship is like God ringing a holy dinner bell that gathers a people in to worship and to lift up hands of thanksgiving and adoration and to come in with empty bellies and open hands to receive from the grace of God. And then we said the second C was cleansed, that before you eat dinner with your family, you wash your hands. You come clean. Or rather, in Christian worship, God cleanses your hands and gives us his peace. In which, in the passing of the peace, we recognize that God has done something new. He has created a new creation, a new community. And so last week, we went to the word consecrated, in which we are still today. And we said that last week, in worship, with baptism and creeds and scripture, we come to recognize who is in the family in the global family of faith. And we recognize the story and the ancestry and the unity, both past and present and future and north, south, east, and west of the church, which is our family, seated around the table. And today we get to the last part of the consecrated, part two. And I want to say that before you eat the meal, you hold hands with those around you. You present and share the dishes that each of you have brought and you pray before the meal. And that's where we are in the metaphor. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about prayer. I want to talk about the commitment of time and announcements and testimonies and the mundane things of being the church. And I want to talk about uh, the giving of tithes and offerings. But before I launch into that, let us pray and recognize that we really do need the Spirit of God to open up God's Word to us. Let's pray. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. We ask for your leading and your guidance, and I do, as I bring your word today. We come to you as a needy people. Help us recognize our need of you. Don't, help, don't, don't let our hearts think that we are rich apart from you, or that we are well-dressed apart from the fact that you have clothed us, or that we are wise or smart apart from your wisdom. We need you. Father, Son, and Spirit. So we ask that you would open your word to us today and we say, together, where else could we go? Because you alone have the words of life. In your name, amen. Recently, I joined a gym, okay? That's all right. It's called CrossFit. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. Some people think it's a cult, all right? Because CrossFit is more like a small club than your typical big gym, like a Y or a Gold's gym or something like that. At your typical gym, you pay this uh, smaller fee and you get a room full of like 500 piece of, pieces of equipment, all right, and you just kind of go for it. You know, one, one piece of equipment is for your right pinky finger and the other is for uh, your upper two abs, all right? There's just like a million machines, all right? And then, but in CrossFit, 
you, you join a smaller organization, smaller than those gyms, and there are like six classes a day, all right? And everyone does the same workout routine. You do the same movement, you do the same reps, and you do the same patterns. And uh, as I have joined recently, I've noticed that I begin to see the same people repeatedly, you know, as I go to the regular workouts. It's like a small fitness family for me. And so that's what they say set, sets CrossFit apart, is the community. See, I'm trying to, see, now it is kind of like a cult. I'm selling you on it. See, in CrossFit, you have a community of people committed to a greater vision. All right, in this case, strength, flexibility, and the health of the human body. You follow a common workout schedule and routine. There's a trainer or coach who leads every class. He or she knows the routines and the movements fully and helps to make sure you're doing them correctly and safely and effectively. And in these classes, as I began the process, I've noticed that there are people of different levels of fitness in the class. That's one great thing about CrossFit. Some people are like super fit. And they're doing high weights, and you know they're doing all the pull-ups, and they're doing all the you know kick-up, pull-up things, crazy. And some people are not fit and don't have experience with, lift, with lifting weights like me. And so when you're doing some exercises, you can tell the people who are a little bit weaker, like myself, uh, and have a different level of fitness. But as I've participated in CrossFit, I've noticed that uh, it does foster this team mentality that people come around and see if I'm doing something wrong and they'll be like, you, you might want to try it this way or you might want to try it with a little weight. But what I've seen is that one uh, commits their, if one commits their time and their money and even their life to this community, then inevitably their life and the community's life together begins to be transformed. And I've really enjoyed it. And of course, because I'm a pastor and always exploiting my life for sermon illustrations, it has made me think about the church and about this church, Grace Mosaic. Because in the church, you have a community of people committed to a greater vision. In this case, the kingdom of God, the love of God and the love of neighbor. You, you follow a common schedule and routine. You have worship and prayer and service, service and fellowship and love. There is a trainer and a coach who helps lead all of this the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the leaders that he has given to this community and the church. And in the church's life together, I've noticed that there are people with different levels of strength and faith and maturity and love. There are different gifts bestowed upon the community, and we need each other. Some of us have a stronger faith and love in certain areas, and we need to help with the weak and vice versa. And we need to encourage each other towards growth. But what I've seen in the church in my life is that if one commits their life and their time and yes, even their resources to this community, then not only their life, but our life together begins to be transformed. Because the thing about God is he calls a people as they are, but he does not leave them as they are. And that the expectation of life in the spirit is growth. And the scripture says... That we would grow up into our new selves, which are being renewed after the image of their creator. That God and the Father, Son, and Spirit would correct us and change us and lead us towards growth in the image in which we were meant to live out of. How does this happen? It happens through the mundane exercises and routines that we live out as the people of God. Week after week, not only in this space, but in the space of our homes and the space of our lives. And I want to focus on three of those exercises today. We're going to look at three things, which are the power of prayer, the cultivation of love, 
and the grace of giving. Power of prayer, the cultivation of love, and the grace of giving, which correlate to our prayers in Christian worship, and then the cultivation of love to the time we spend together and commit to one another, and the grace of giving, the giving of our tithes and offerings. And we are going to traverse ourselves through three different passages in the book of Revelation. It's a little different for me, uh, but hopefully we can learn and glean from each of these separately as they are God's word. And so when we get to Revelation 8, our first passage, we read that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I like John's language there. He's like, it got silent. It was about half an hour. And in the context of Revelation, you remember the opening of the scroll, correct? And we said Revelation 6 uh, was the opening of the first six scrolls of judgment and God's visitation on the earth. And then we had Revelation 7 last week, which we see who were the marked out people of God who are kept safe in the midst of judgment. And now we get to the seventh and, fi- and final judgment. And there's this silence and silence in the scriptures uh, in the prophetic books, usually connote God's judgment when things are poured out. And the book of Revelation goes in these cycles of seven. There are seven scrolls, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls that are poured out. And they're just imagery of perpetual judgment and God's uh, judging and visitation upon the earth. And what the, bil- the book builds to, as we'll get to next week, is the, the final judgment when God finally corrects all things, when God finally judges the beasts and the dragon and the harlot. We'll see that next week. Ooh, uh, scandalous. <laughs> and that's what the book builds to, that judgment keeps going. But what the book reveals is that God, and what Scripture reveals is that God is patient before he judges the earth because he wants no one to perish and wishes all would come to repentance. That's what the Scripture says. And the in-between reality in which God is, is bringing out some judgments but not bringing out the final judgment, that is what the church, the people of God, live in the midst of. The Christians in Revelation and Christians today are, are living in this painful in-between where we have to cry out, How long, O Lord? We live through suffering. And, and sometimes, and some Christians across the world, suffer for their witness to Jesus. And what the scene reveals in this little interlude before we get to the seven trumpets at the end of the seven seals, that there's, it's a little bit bizarre, but I hope to convey to you that this is a beautiful and hopeful image in Revelation 8 here. What we see that, is that there is an angel ministering before the throne of God, and they are swinging what's called a censer back and forth before the throne of God. Now that is bizarre to us. What is a censer? Well, uh, you ever watched a, a Roman Catholic worship service or a Greek Orthodox service where the minister walks down uh, the aisle and swings this kind of golden ball and it's burning full of incense? That is what a censer is, all right? It's this, this golden ball that is burning the incense. And what the scene reveals to us, that in the censer that the angel is swinging before the throne of God are the prayers of the saints, Revelation reveals that that means all the prayers of the church, both on earth and in heaven, are being presented to God. And so what this beautiful scene reveals to us is that God hears the prayers of his people. See, this scene is especially relevant to those Christians living in Revelation who are crying out for God to do something in their world, to vindicate the innocent blood that's been shed to bring a correction for oppression and injustice. And they cry out, how long, O Lord? They don't make peace with evil. They look at evil square in the face, 
faith, face, and they say, how long, O Lord? But the people, the people of God, this scene reveals to us that we as the church on earth, as we pray and offer our prayers together or individually, our prayers lift up to the throne of God because the Father loves to listen to his children. Jesus taught us over and over again this very same reality that God loves to hear the cries of his children. Someone has said, Paul Miller, that if you were to summarize the theology of prayer for Jesus, it's one word, ask. Jesus said, and I tell you, in Luke 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. And then he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a snake? He then says, if you then, you fathers who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then when Jesus teaches us how to pray, what are the first lines he tells us to start with? Our Father, who art in heaven. The assumption is that the Father's ear is open to his children. This is right in line with our picture here in Revelation. As the, as the incense of the prayers go up, they go up before God, and he hears them. He listens to them. At the heart of living a life of prayer as a Christian, both as the church and as each of us follow Jesus, is getting over the idea of some God very, very far away, in which you sort of have to pester him to get his attention. Or he's not involved in the workings of your life and the nitty-gritty details. We have to get over that idea and Jesus brings us into the heart of Christian prayer, which is our Father. Because the heart of prayer for a Christian is a childlike faith. Whether we're talking about praying together or praying as the church, it's the same. When we come together, even in this space, we pray prayers of thanksgiving. We say, thank you, Father. We pray prayers of confession. Forgive me, Father. We pray prayers of intercession which is heal him, heal her, heal the wounds of our land. Stop the evildoers from doing evil. Stop injustice. Stop cruelty. The posture that we take together is one like children, where we say, Father, please do this. Part of discovering the heart of prayer is realizing your dependency and embracing it and destroying your illusions of self-sufficiency. Do you know that? Do you know that the theology of prayer is simply to ask, to pray, to expect God to be listening to you? But secondly, the scene reveals that, God, that prayer accomplishes God's purposes in the world. See, see, look where the scene goes. The angel who's offering the prayers of the saints then takes the fire, which probably symbolizes the spirit of God, and after offering the prayers, the angel throws the fire and the, and the prayers back upon the earth. And there are peals of thunder, rumblings, flames of lightnings, earthquakes. In this symbolic imagery, we basically learn that God intervenes and acts on the earth through the prayers of his people. And you may ask at this point, well, if God knows what we are going to ask, if God is all-powerful, why do we bother to pray? You ever ask that in yourself? You may be relieved that Christians have been asking that question for a very, very long time. Because this is part of the mystery of God's will and providence. Origen was an ancient church father. He, he, was, he lived in North Africa. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt from the 2nd and 3rd century. He was the first uh, church father to really write a systematic book on prayer. And you know what he says? He has a relatively simple answer to this. 
He says, of course, God knows what you are going to say and do. But God has decided that he will work out his purposes through what we decide to say and do. That's what uh, Origen says. And so Rowan Williams, in conclusion, said, if it's God's will to bring something about, some act or healing or reconciliation, some change for the better in our world, he has chosen that your prayer is going to be a part of a set of causes that make that happen. So you'd better get on with it as you and your prayers are part of God's overall purposes for the situation in which he is going to work. That's an amazing truth, church, that God works through the prayers of his people. So as we interact with life in this world, as you face uncertainty and fears and anxiety and conflict as your life, as you get annoyed with people and wish that they would be different, my question to you and God's question to you is, have you prayed? Have you simply asked that God would begin to change something or someone through how you pray? Have you prayed that God would be changing your heart to make you a lover of himself and of your neighbor? Have you prayed for your children? Have you prayed for your roommate? Or do we just sit there and get annoyed with people and say, oh, I wish you were different? God asks us to bring our prayers before him. Are you annoyed with the church? Do you wish Grace Mosaic was different? Do you wish something was different in this community? Have you prayed? But why is prayer so hard? You know that prayer is hard. We get discouraged in our life of prayer, don't we? And part of our struggle is that we live and breathe the air of cynicism. We have become skeptical of the idea of a good God. We have become skeptical of the idea that God is a good shepherd that presides over our universe and that God uses our prayers to work in the world. We say, behind every silver lining, there is a cloud. We always see the bad and we are always critiquing what's happening. We are uncharitable. We make peace with evil, don't we? Jesus leads us into the very heart of prayer and into this childlike faith to learn how to ask and be hopeful that God will do something in the world. He asks us not to make peace with evil, but as we look about, even as we look around our city today, to not be apathetic, but to, to, to cry out to God to actually change people's hearts. To cry out to God as Chris just did, which was such a boon to my soul and a strength to my faith. To ask God to bring justice. To ask God to bring repentance and to change people and to heal our land. But to do so is to not embrace cynicism, but it's to embrace hope. And to lament and to pray against evil. And to not be apathetic and hopeless. Brian Stevenson, who started this amazing uh, equal justice initiative down in Montgomery, Alabama, which is my town, says hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Cynicism is the enemy of God's work in this world. So we have to free ourselves and practice prayer in the childlike way. And if you are doubtful and cynical, then the exercise or routine of prayer that Jesus leads you into, it might make you a little sore. It might stretch some muscles that aren't used to being stretched. Recently, I prayed for something actually here in the ministry of Grace Mosaic. I asked for God to, to provide a person for something that I couldn't do myself. I just asked God to provide, and you know what? God did. But I was so cynical in that moment that I fought off the temptation to say, well, it was going to happen anyway. You know? It doesn't really matter that I asked for it. That is cynicism. 
that asceticism. Another reason why it's hard to pray is because we try to go at it alone. It's kind of like me before, before I joined CrossFit, I was a member of the Y, and so I would walk into the Y, and as I told you, there's like 500 pieces of machinery, okay? And I would just sort of walk in there, I don't know anything about weightlifting, you know how it is, you just sort of like putts around, you hop on a treadmill, you get on like the knee machine, and you just sort of walk around aimlessly, and you don't really get a good workout, do you? Sometimes our life of prayer is like that too, because we try to go at it alone. And oftentimes, we as the church and the leaders of the church have been guilty of saying that prayer is dependent upon each individual's discipline and your life and the way you're able to structure your life and find time to pray. But prayer is not supposed to be like this. Prayer, like everything else in the Christian life, is not supposed to be severed from the community of faith. We are supposed to pray together because when you pray together, even maybe if if you just heard Chris pray today or others pray today or Gabe talking about the retreat, your, your faith is strengthened. When you hear another image bearer of God praying to God in the way that they do, you realize that you're kind of weak in some ways that they're strong and you're strong in some ways that they're weak. So in the routine of life, God asks us to pray together. Jesus prayed three times a day in the temple with his disciples. So we need to seek out times together to pray. We have fourth Monday prayer every fourth Monday at 8 p.m. at uh, the Willits house. We have uh, prayer in our community groups. And we're going to keep scheduling more times to pray together. Because I believe that we should not go at this alone. So that's the first exercise that the Lord leads us to. That's what we have time to talk about that today, which is the power and practice of prayer. And the next move to the next exercise that our coach, the Lord, leads us in is the cultivation of love. The cultivation of love. You may have noticed that I chose three different passages today to preach on. And these next two are taken from the seven letters to the seven churches, which uh, are found in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And I want to just briefly give you a framework for those letters before I, I go into them. There's always an intro that describes Jesus, that gives Jesus a title. It's taken from only the first chapter of the book of Revelation where it's introducing these titles of Jesus. And then Jesus speaks to the church directly. And he usually affirms them and says something he knows about them. He basically says, I see you. I see what you're doing. And then consistently Jesus offers a challenge or sometimes a flat out rebuke. Sometimes a slap slap upside the head. And then gives the church an invitation to repent, a warning And then a promise to move towards him, to move in repentance. Uh, And then it's a a promise from the future reality of the new heavens and new earth. And those are always taken from the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. So we begin to see the beauty in which the book is written. And then every letter says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an invitation to listen. And these seven churches, of course, the number seven in Revelation represents fullness. So these seven churches represent the fullness of the church of God. So each of them is for us, basically. I didn't pick them because they're any more relevant to Mosaic than one or the other. I picked them because they're relevant to what we're talking about today. Our first letter here is written to the church of, of Ephesus. 
The Church of Ephesus is a really important book, uh, sorry, a really important church at this time. It's basically the center of the early church. Maybe you remember the book of Ephesians and the Paul's missionary work in Ephesus from the book of Acts. Basically, all the hotshot pastors of the early church, like Paul, Apollos, Timothy, they've all been pastors at Ephesians, at Ephesus. So this church is doing a lot of good stuff. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Mm. Here we, we see Jesus's intimate knowledge of the church. Jesus sees us. Jesus sees the Ephesians. He knows that they have been working hard, doing a lot of programs, loving each other, worshiping, serving their neighbors. They have been true to the faith that was handed down to them. They, they haven't entertained teachers in the church who claim an authority that they're not worthy of, who, who speak to the tickling of the ears of today, but who stay faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word and the faith. And then he tells them that they are enduring patiently. They're, they're suffering and bearing up for his name's sake, and they haven't grown weary. But... He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's a powerful line. And it says that there can be a lot of things going on in the church. There can be a lot of work being done in the church, even service done in the church. But somehow we can move away from the love that we had at first. So that leads me to the question, who or what had they forgotten to love? Is it the Lord? Is it Jesus? Have they lacked in their love for Jesus as they've done the work for him? Or is it the community? Have they failed to love each other well as they've done the work of the church? And different commentators say different things here. It's ultimately, I suppose, inconclusive. But what I've come to realize is that in the Bible's view, those two, separate, those two questions are inseparable. Because how you are loving your neighbor is how you are loving God. Because each one is an image bearer of God. The Lord said, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and your mind, and your strength. This is the greatest commandment. And the second one's like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. First John says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, uh, sorry, <laughs> he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Mm. That's a powerful message. And what Jesus wants the Ephesian church to know is to remember the most important and fundamental truth that our job and that their job as the church is to be a vessel of love towards God and towards neighbor. See, what I've learned in CrossFit is that you can be doing an exercise, a lot of them, but you might not be doing it rightly or correctly. You can basically be kind of hurting yourself in the process. I've done it a few times. The Ephesians are doing the exercises, but they're not doing them correctly. Or rightly, they're hurting themselves because they moved away from the fundamentals. And so, Jesus calls them to repent, or else, he says, I will come take away your lampstand. What does that mean? The lampstand symbolizes that the church is a light unto the nations, a light to the world. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that if you continue in this unloving pattern, your witness will not go out. Your neighbors will not see and glorify God on account of what you are doing. So our life to 
together as the church is to be shaped and formed into lovers of God, lovers of neighbor. And so Jesus says to them, remember, repent, and work. Our job is to remember and bask in the love that God has shown for us because we cannot love others unless we know first that God has loved us. We love others because Christ first loved us. That's what the scripture says. But also, Jesus tells them to work, to do the deeds that they did at first. And here we come to see that we have to work to cultivate love together. This is the great tension of love and the Christian understanding of love because all of us want deep relationships, don't we? We want deep friendships. We want deep connection in the church. We want deep uh, relationship with our spouse and romantic companionship as our life together. What are we desperate for? We're, we're, We're desperate for connection and embrace. But think with me of any deep friendship in your life. Picture that relationship and zoom in on it. And when you do, you will see that each relationship of love, if you were to zoom in on it, you see the small gestures, the moments of time spent together, the gifts and the thoughtful words. Love is a wonderful feeling, amen, but love is also an arduous duty in which one must put another before themselves. That is the duty of love. So for our love together as a community, as the church, many people walk into church and expect it to be like a big, long-lasting friendship and a big kumbaya moment every week. But the realization of the church is the same realization we face in all of our life, that love takes work. It takes time. It takes thoughtful gestures. It, it takes gifts and thoughtful words. It takes prayer. Are you always going to feel like loving the church? No. I'm the pastor and I don't even feel that way. <laughs> But God does not ask you to rely upon your feeling. God asks you to to remain faithful to the command to love. Are you always going to feel like loving your friend, like loving your boss, like loving your enemy? No, you're not. Because love is a feeling and a duty. So when we come to the time of our service every week for announcements, for testimonies, for prayers, it is our time to be attentive to one another, to be attentive to what's happening in the family. And as you make the decision to come to worship or not, I know sometimes some things prevent you from doing it. But as as you think about attending worship, you are thinking about the decision whether you're going to love the body or not. And of course, we can't make it, but if we don't prioritize our life together, then we will abandon the love we had at first. And in fact, every decision in every part of your life, in every moment of your life, is either a decision towards love or away from love. Towards the love of God God and neighbor or away from the love of God and neighbor. And if we don't commit to serve our neighbors and put them first together, then we will as well abandon the love that we had at first. So that's why Jesus challenges and rebukes the Ephesians to remember and to repent. So so Jesus gives his church the exercise of prayer and the cultivation of love through time and through commitment. And finally, he gives them the last exercise, the grace of giving, the grace of giving. Our second letter, uh, maybe you felt in the reading of scripture, is perhaps the most infamous of all the letters to the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm Christians. You ever heard of being a lukewarm Christian? Maybe it'll help us to know a little bit about Laodicea before we read the letter. Laodicea, it was a prosperous city, okay? It was known uh, for its great wealth and its many industries, but especially it was known for its industries of cloth and textiles, for making clothes. It was a fashion center, you could say. Uh, 
It was also a medical center that was especially remembered for caring for people's eyes. It had an amazing school of ophthalmology, not optometry, ophthalmology, you know, the care for the eyes. But it was also located a little far away from a natural water source, okay? So the water that they piped into Laodicea had to be piped from far away. And in the ancient world, cold water was seen as refreshing and healthy. Hot water was seen as a tonic with medicinal purposes to bathe in or to take into your body. Lukewarm water, it was seen as gross, okay? So this imagery is not really about being hot for Jesus, you know, because Jesus said, I wish you were cold or hot. <laughs> it's basically saying to the Laodiceans that your faith is contaminated, that Jesus finds your faith a little growth, gross as the church. I was traveling this week outside of Pittsburgh, and I was at this uh, country house out on these cornfields in western PA, probably from around where uh, Russ is from. And... Uh, and this house was, I guess, connected to some sort of uh, natural spring or something. But the water, when it turned on, you know what I'm talking about? You could just smell like eggs. It, it smelled like the water had soaked in a vat of hard-boiled eggs. And uh, every time I went to brush my teeth, it was just I wanted to spit the water out because out, it was gross. But we did have this, these nice, huge containers of the spring water, right? And so that's what you wanted to drink. What Jesus is saying is that the Laodiceans' faith is so contaminated and idolatrous and suffocated by riches and intellect and prestige and imagery that they have forgotten to love God as well. They have forgotten even maybe to worship at all because they don't think they need to. So they say, I'm rich. I prospered. I need nothing. That's a dangerous place to be. And Jesus says, you, you don't realize that you're actually wretched. You're actually pitiable. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. They confuse material sufficiency with the sufficiency that Jesus talks about, which is loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving neighbor as ourselves. They don't think they need anything from Jesus. If they worship at all, they don't worship out of a sense of their desperate need for God. They don't worship out of a sense of childlike faith. They worship for the mere obligation and show of it. Because they're rich, they're self-sufficient. Eugene Peterson says there was no sense of need to drive them to their knees in supplication. There was no poverty to draw them into the community of friends where all things are held in common and shared in love. There was no hunger and thirst after righteousness to impel them to the banquet table laden with blessings and redemption. So Jesus plays off these idolatries, their idea of their wealth, their idea of their image and their cloth, and their idea of their beautiful medical technology and its anointing of the eyes. And what he says is, he says, actually, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're wretched and blind. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you could actually be rich. And I counsel you to get white garments that you would clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may actually see. This is powerful preaching from Jesus. This is contextualized preaching where he's saying, this is what makes you think that you are strong, but you got it completely upside down. This is finding your sufficiency in me because the love of these things will always make you hurt God and hurt others but the love of Jesus will do the opposite. Isn't it true that some of the emptiest people in our world are also the richest? Isn't it true that some of the prettiest people in our world also, but have the ugliest hearts? Isn't it true that some of the smartest people in the world have missed the most important truth of love? 
That's what Jesus is talking about. So if you are ever, and if we are ever in a place of presuming that material or economic or intellectual sufficiency equates to the sufficiency that God gives, then we should beware. Because the love of money and status is dangerous, says the scripture. That's just what it says. Mike Higgins, my father and mentor in the faith, used to say it like this. He said, money is a wonderful tool, but it is a horrible leader. Money will make you do things that you never dreamed of. Uh, I, I want to say, every t- my, Melissa and I, we, we watch Dateline all the time. I, I just, this is an impromptu illustration, okay? And every single Dateline episode is a man almost like always murdering his husband for life insurance money. It's tragic. It's tragic. We do crazy things for the love of money. People enslave other human beings and traffic them all the way across the world and, and treat them like cattle to be bought and sold because they love money. Because they put the profits over the people. People today endlessly shop and accessorize their life, paying no attention to the person in need right next door. Because we love money. That is why in Christian worship and life, we practice the act of giving every single week. Not only because it's the right response of thanksgiving, because we as Christians recognize that everything is owned by God. We are mere stewards. We have been loaned things. And we give them back to God, not only because it is a right response, But it's also this amazing thing because God frees us as we give from the love of money. And he forms us towards understanding that money is a tool to be used to help and love and liberate and glorify God. That is what money is. And so the scriptures call this the grace of giving. It's not only the grace of giving because we are pouring ourselves out graciously for our neighbors in need and that the church is supposed to share all things in common and that here in this economy, we shouldn't see the same vast inequalities that we see out in the world. When it's said of the early church in Acts that there was no poor person and person really needy among them because they sold everything and shared everything in common. And if you think that's redistribution and socialism, I'm sorry. I'm just preaching the scriptures because the, the, the community of faith isn't supposed to be dictated by this economic theory or that economic theory. We are dictated by love and community. But the the grace is also a gift to us because it allows us and frees us to put stuff in their right place, to love others as, as as we are called to love. And that every day, every week as we participate in the tithes and offering as the plate comes around, you people of God are to know yourself as operating in an alternative economy because you've been brought into an alternative kingdom where Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And when Jesus, when he saw a poor widow giving out of her deficiency instead of the wealthy giving out of their abundance, he said, she's given more than they have. That is the economy. To give even when it is a great sacrifice, especially when it is a great sacrifice to us. That is what the Lord blesses. I used to say uh, that this letter to the Laodiceans, I used to say that it had no encouragement. That it was just like a rebuke. It was just this harsh letter from Jesus. He was feeling pretty angry that day and he let him have it. You know, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That sounds like a mama saying, I'm going to put you over my knee. Um, But you know, Oftentimes, as Flannery O'Connor said, to the heart of hearing, you have to shout. Because Jesus does not let you keep going on in your illusions and your lack of love. Sometimes he shakes you by the collar and says, wake up, dude. He shouts to the church at Laodicea. Do you know why? Because he loves them. He loves them. 
Jesus might make you do some exercises that you don't want to do, that make you a little sore. Jesus might smack you upside the head in love because that's because he wants your heart to be in better shape than it is. The other day, Oscar and I were, were laying in his bed before he went to bed, and he said, he, he asks a lot of deep theological questions. I told him this morning I was going to talk about him. He said, please do. Um, <laughs> and he said, Papa, does everyone have a heart? Ooh, see, that's the kind of questions he asks. And I said, yes, everyone is made in the image of God, and they have a heart, a soul. He said, even the bad guys? I said, yes, but you see, the bad guys' hearts are so twisted and broken that they're sad and angry and selfish. And he said, is, is my heart like that? Or is my heart whole like this? And I said, all of our hearts are a little like this. But the work of God and the work of spiritual formation is God slowly stretching our hearts to be whole again. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those who I love, I challenge. I give them a different way. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love. Jesus is training us. He's challenging us. He's correcting us. And he's warning us because he knows what is best. And he loves us. He is a shepherd for all of us foolish sheep. But he is a shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. So we trust him. And he is good. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Oftentimes, this verse is quoted for one to accept Jesus into their life and into their heart. You ever heard it like that? And I do believe that this is about deep communion with Jesus. It's about personal communion, but it's also missing the obvious connection to the whole church. Where does the church eat with Jesus? Where does he dine with us? In worship and at his table. We together in the church at Laodicea was called to not suffocate themselves with their riches, but to open the door to let Jesus in. Sometimes in our life, our houses are so full of stuff that we have pushed Jesus to the outside. And Jesus says, I'm standing here knocking. Let me in. So we as the church in our worship and our witness are to be watchful that we don't stuff ourselves with the things of this world to where we have no appetite left for the bread of life and the living water. And we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we are rich apart from Jesus. That is what frees us to actually love each other, to actually share things in common, not only money, but time. To see my time as your time and our time together, to commit time to this place, to commit love to this place. And Jesus invites them to open the door that he might commune with them, that they might be changed in their communion with him. So the church is to be this alternative community of people committed to a greater vision. That vision is the kingdom of God, the love of God, and the love of neighbor, where grace and equity is our currency. The Spirit is forming us through all of the exercises of worship, but especially we think today through prayer, the cultivating of love and time and community, and through the grace of giving away our things. And this, all of this forms us into the image of God. But who is the perfect image of God? The scripture reveals it is the Lord Jesus. It was he who taught us to pray, not my will, but yours be done in the garden. It was he that committed his life and his energy and time even to his enemies and to the point of death. And it was he who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He stands and knocks. He desires our communion. And we commune with him now. In the name of the Father and Son and Spirit. Amen. Uh.